You're listening to Sascapes, a podcast featuring the stories of arts, culture, and heritage in Saskatchewan. Welcome to episode 30 of Sascapes. There is a part of our city's culture that many of us pass each day. It is not art, it is not the sound of a street busker, but it is part of our landscape, and still there is a story of heritage to be found here. This is a very special episode, which pays tribute to part of that culture and heritage, the culture of the marginalized person living on the street. Alvin Cody's presence on the streets of Saskatoon was known to many. Not always an easy story, and most certainly filled with a lot of humor, the life of Alvin Cody has touched the lives of many and continues to do so today. Many thanks to my first guest, Daryl Leachman of SkyApp, the Saskatoon Community Youth Arts Programming, and my second guest, Constable Derek Chesney, of the Saskatoon Police Department. Daryl and Chess share personal stories of how Alvin touched their lives and the lives of many others. I am at SkyApp in downtown Saskatoon with SkyApp's director, Daryl Leachman. And I've wanted to do this podcast for quite some time time and I know that my Sascape series is about arts culture and heritage in Saskatchewan and in my mind part of our culture um, are the people on the streets and the people who go about their busy lives the corporate people the shopkeepers and the disenfranchised the people who don't have a place to go home to every night, um, who have somehow fallen between the cracks. One gentleman in particular had a huge impact on me when this occurred uh, April 19th, 2013. Alvin Cody died uh, just a few days shy of his 60th birthday here in Saskatoon. Um, And... Alvin, it would not be an exaggeration to say that Alvin has touched the lives of more people than I think he even knew. And so I want to pay tribute to the memory of Alvin because he was such a huge part of the downtown culture of Saskatoon. Daryl really had a one-on-one relationship with Alvin, and so I thought that He would be the best person to represent the kind of character Alvin was and provide me with some great stories about how Alvin moved through life and the people he impacted. So thank you, Daryl, for willing to do this. You're you're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, and um, it's also um, a a pleasure to to speak um, about Alvin. Uh, I think that 
Elvin's one of these people that a lot of people um, wouldn't want to give the time of day to and, and maybe, you know, cross the street uh, to go by. But um, uh, Elvin, like a lot of people that have been, as you use the word disenfranchised or as I'll use marginalized, um, a lot of people are in the position they're in um, for situations that um, often, um, you know, start with um, not what they've put themselves into and what their circumstances and environment and and even society to some degree has put them to. Um, And they're not necessarily bad people um, or not necessarily even scary people when you get to know them. And uh, Elvin is one of those people that, um, although he did have some times in his life when, you know, violence was a big part of it, um, him as a person, if you get to know him, he was um, he was a very likable person with a with a great sense of humor, um, and he had a heart. Mm-hmm. So, um, in in speaking about someone like that, as you had said, we developed a relationship over a, a, a period of a couple of years, at least two three years, um, and then to see him go when he did, even though. Every day you look at him and you think he's not going to last long just with the kind of life that he's had and the kind of life that he's currently living or was currently living. But nonetheless, when it happens, it's, um, it's, it's, it's tough. It's a very tough time to, to lose someone like that. Um, can you recall when you first encountered Alvin and what you were doing at the time that made that happen? Oh, that's a tough one because, I mean, um, just walking through the downtown area, which I do um, on a daily basis, uh, I would bump into him at various places. So I could not even give you a time, but he would have been somebody that was uh, on the street probably hanging out maybe in the the bank shelter um, over here, the CIBC, where I would go um, because I use that bank uh, to use the bank machine. Uh, there was times there that, that I would see him. I would see him outside of uh, the Starbucks on 2nd. Uh, and then he started to uh, come into our place. And that's really when we started to build a relationship, when he walked in through the front doors of the Saskatoon Community Youth Arts Program, or Sky App, um, uh, and, and had a seat in here. And then it kind of developed from there. So um, to pinpoint a time... Um, or even a specific instance, I, I, I can't do that. Right. But, well, I guess the question that would come to mind for a lot of people is, what's the difference between somebody that walks by someone like that and, and sees them as being feared or or to be ignored and somebody like you that that sees somebody like Alvin be an opportunity for a connection with with another human life? Well, I think, in fairness, with my history, it, 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 it puts me in a different mindset that would maybe approach someone like that and, and think that, you know, they're just like anyone else. Um, but that's, again, the history that I have. It would be unfair for somebody without my history where, you know, I had worked in a federal prison for 15 years in a maximum prison as well as... Uh, you know, starting Sky App for you know for the purposes of helping people, and maybe not necessarily as old as Elvin, but younger people that are kind of on the road to living Elvin's life. Um, so, getting an idea of of, of those kind of the, the kind of people that are in those positions and that are marginalized, and and working as a personal development coach for marginalized youth, I think that um, it gives me a bit of a, a kind of a premonition to 
you know, what I'm seeing with, with those people um, as opposed to somebody else. So it, it, it's, to me, they're just like anyone else. I, I don't even know how to explain it. It's got to a point in life where there's no uncertainty. There's not a, um, there's not a, there's not a fear. It's more of, uh, you know, hey, how are you? Maybe it's difficult for us to walk by somebody like an Alvin and and think, well, that could never happen to me. But also, in the back of our minds, we all must be mindful that that circumstances, life circumstances, can take us to places we would rather not think about and have us in predicaments that we might not be able to climb out of. And perhaps it's easier to ignore an Alvin rather than face the reality of just how fragile life is on a day-to-day basis for us all, that nothing's set in stone, nothing is predictable. And that Alvin is an example of somebody. I mean, on on the there's so much. If you Google Alvin Cody, it's staggering the number of hits that this man who lives on the street should should garner so many hits on Google. Um, in in uh, a blog called Cops and Bloggers, one of the uh, police officers, Alvin was very well known to the police department here. Um, commented that Alvin talked a little about a little about his childhood merely that he had many brothers and sisters, that his dad worked in a bush camp up by Hudson Bay. Um, Alvin was born in Kamsack on, uh, on the um, Cote First Nations. And his, uh, the uh, chief, Gabriel Cote, was a prominent uh, chief there who was also part of Alvin's family tree. Um, signed the Treaty 4 in 1874. So Alvin had a life. Alvin had a family. Alvin had people. He had heritage. And there he is sitting in the lobby of the CIBC. So again, there but for the grace of God go we that anyone can wind up in the most bizarre circumstances. So you walk by these people because you see the humanity in them. I... uh I, I do, for sure. And, you know, although, again, I think it's kind of unfair to, to throw that at kind of the, the, the common everyday person um, that maybe hasn't had that history. Um, the other thing that I think about, too, is I, I think obviously like you do is that, and, and I know for a fact that, that a lot of people really in, you know, in re- middle income families and such are, you know, almost a paycheck Mm-hmm. away from living on the street. Mm-hmm. And I know that because of, of, of the, the world that I'm involved in with homelessness and such, and you know that. But a lot of people, I don't think, think that. Mm-hmm. They think that they're not as vulnerable. They think that, you know, because they've got family and they've got people around them and they've got these securities that they're okay. But um, there are situations where, you know, one certain thing happens. You know, a, a, a fellow who is a... Who is a, a, a a long-distance truck driver, for instance, um, got in a bad accident, and the company that he worked for didn't have uh, the proper insurances. And because he was um, out of out of the country, they ran into a whole bunch of financial issues. And to to, to cut a story short, this fellow put his whole family into because of that accident into a real financial dilemma and then he started obviously having then he had some brain damage so his wife started to have some difficulties in this relationship and 
then um, next thing you know, she's leaving over a period of time because of there's no, she's got to go do something and he doesn't want... It, it, a whole bunch of things evolved from this, right? And then this fella, at some point, a couple of years later, because he's got these mental, uh, these mental health issues now, and then he goes to drugs to try and get rid of some of this pain because he's lost, lost his family. And lost. This fella who was, you know, a higher than middle income, he had a family of three, he had a house, and, you know, after a series of all these different events, you know, four years later, he's living on the street. And then shortly thereafter, he's in the lighthouse. And he's got nothing except some mental health issues. And this person was no different than a person living with a house they've purchased in Caswell, maybe City Park area. Circumstances. And the wrong circumstances, the wrong timing, and, and, and he's out. So it happens. And so it happened to Alvin. His own set of circumstances brought him to uh, his life here on the streets in Saskatoon. But what, over the time you got to know Alvin, what was it about his personality that had such an impact on people? Some people spoke of him and said perhaps he was an angel. He touched so many people's lives. Um, Tell me a little bit about your impressions of Alvin and, and... why he made such an impact what what set him what set him apart from somebody who may completely alienate themselves it sounds like he was quite in quite a gregarious character hey it's kevin i hope you're enjoying the episode so far just a quick reminder that the sascapes podcast is available for free on your favorite podcast app or you can stream it from your browser. Check out the show notes for the link. On the Sascapes homepage, you'll notice something new under the logo called Sascapes Plus. You can't miss it. There's a big button saying support with a heart icon next to it. I'd love it if you could click on that button and help keep this podcast series going. When Sascapes launched in May 2014, it was the first podcast in the province celebrating arts, culture, and heritage. In fact, you'd have been pretty hard-pressed to find any Saskatchewan podcast. So I'd like to think that we paved the way. It's been because of your support that this podcast is now in its ninth year. Okay, that's it. Enjoy the rest of the episode. And I think there is there is one specific piece that, that does that and adheres people to him. Um, and that's that if you actually do say a few words to him or you do talk to him or you, know, you give an opportunity for that conversation, Elvin was, he was one of the most positive people that I think I've met in the last number of years. He, there was nothing really negative about what would come out of Elvin's mouth. And if it did, there was a laugh behind it and just that, you know, that's just what it is, and, and move on to something that's, you know, that's, that's, that's happy or something that's funny. Um, and and th- that's what made, actually, sitting down and chatting with, with Elvin was almost to some degree therapeutic in the sense that I myself spent a lot of time talking with people on very um, difficult issues and uh, crisis management and, um, and working with people when they're in very kind of uh, distressed states. Um, so to sit and speak with someone who had such a positive attitude and such a, um, 
and not that those people had negative attitudes for definitely had reasons for, mm. but nonetheless, Alvin was just um, was positive and and he was quick with a joke. He was um, very quick witted. He laughed at my jokes, which, <laughs> which is a positive. <laughs> right. um, he the, he was a very personable person that um, that had a, 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 a had a good sense of humor and 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 he and he had a good heart. Um, he had a good heart, and 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 I know that you know he 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 did some things as a younger man and and spent some time, quite a bit of time in. Uh, in, in, in jail for things and um, but from what I gather he always had that kind of um, you know as you use gregarious is a probably a good word um, and that um, that lively personality uh, and his his positive outlook seemed to lend itself to him being he seemed to be a bit of a confidant well, that's uh, that's that's interesting I, I i i don't know if they did i mean I, my, my um my relationship with 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 alvin was um uh it was pretty much him and i i know that here we have some wonderful staff and um, and, and some great people coming in and out of here. But Alvin would just usually kind of sit on his own there, and everybody knew that Alvin can be here whenever he wants, and he can just sit in here regardless of what kind of things we have going on. Mm-hmm. And it was just that, you know, you know because Daryl said that Alvin's cool and Alvin can be here. Um, so it wasn't a lot of interacting where other people came into our conversations and that so for me to comment on on how you know he was with that i'm not sure i just ours was basically a one-on-one relationship did he participate in any of the art no. projects here he just kind of hung out and took it in uh what no no he didn't really he um he played cards he played solitaire uh-huh. He played solitary a lot, and um, any eight, I I often made um, like I'd bring, I'd make my own. I I like to think I eat healthy, so I'd I'd make my own soups, you know, lentil soups and bean soups and that. And and whenever I had it here, and Alvin was here, we he'd have some of my soup, and and then tell me he's going to be, you know, farting for the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> so. Right, and I then I tell him, well, you know what, I, that might not stink as bad as the way you're smelling right now, oh. buddy. <laughs> and he would laugh, of course. Yeah, he would laugh and not yeah. be offended by that. No, he would laugh and he wouldn't be offended. As a matter of fact, I don't know how many people could do this, but I was able to to take to to get Alvin to come with me and to come in here at a specific time, which he wasn't very good at, mm-hmm. but he would do it when I asked him to meet me here at a specific time. He'd make sure that he got here. And um, and I'd take him to um, to a place down Twentieth and have him get showered up and mm-hmm. and uh, you know it was a time I got him some new clothes and um, so he would do those things really for me because he living on the street and and not being allowed to go into any of these places um, to shower and and, and that he. Um, he he brought with him an, an aroma that wasn't that pleasant to others, um, but nonetheless he would, you know, he would he would he would go with me and he'd come and we'd go for a ride and we'd do the whole thing and then you know, I'd wash his old clothes and um, and it was a time I bought him I got him a pair of of um, pants that um, uh, that they didn't quite fit. Like on on yeah. the waist, and I thought that they would, but but it's funny because he'd fluctuate 
in his because he'd be go, he'd take off for two weeks or so and he'd and next thing he'll be back and anyway he he says oh and they're like about four or five inches like they didn't close at the front and I said oh, okay we'll go back and get no 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 these are good and I, I couldn't get him to change he's he's walking around for a number of days with like about four inches apart from oh, his no. his front there but. He did was, take off a lot, and I was reading yeah. that sometimes he'd tell the police when they'd ask him where he'd been Vancouver. that he'd been to Vancouver or Toronto oh. or down. It, yeah. Is that true? Did he actually go to these places? Yeah, I can't. I can't say one way or the other, but I, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. He did have people, you yeah. know, in Vancouver, uh-huh. um, and he had people uh, in Ontario. Um, uh, whether he got there or that, you know what? That's a mystery. Right. And it's a mystery that I never pushed, right? Because I just laughed about it. I said, oh, yeah, Vancouver, right? Yeah, he'd say, yeah, I was in Vancouver. I'd say, oh, yeah, yeah. And did you go to L.A. when you were there? Um, not this time. <laughs> you know, it was, I, I didn't need to go there. I, it wasn't, you know, I'm sure if Elvin wanted to tell me right. exactly about it, you know, he always went, you know, he went to visit his uncle or his sister or and i mean i never i never pushed anything like that but again even if they were travels in his mind they provided him they kept his story going something to talk about something positive um and again gave himself a sense of of dignity of being a person moving through life accomplishing things doing things um which you know, you, we all know people who have very, very safe, predictable lives and fantastic jobs and who you really have to work hard to get one positive outlook out of them, you know. And so here's this guy living on the streets, able to, to laugh under such adverse circumstances. He, he, he never seemed, um, I mean, no, I, I can't, I, I, honestly, I can sit here and say that he never really, he never seemed down. I, I, I cannot remember a time when, you know, he said to me, oh, Daryl, I'm just like feeling really shitty today. And yet I look at him and I'm thinking, he must be feeling really shitty today. But would that ever come out of him? No, never. Right. You know, um, I mean, as it went along, he started looking worse and worse. You know, he was, I mean, he drank anything that he could find and... Mm-hmm. And to that point, he he was arrested more times than they could keep track of. And yet, there has to be a difference between the personality of Alvin Cody and somebody else who is arrested so many times that Alvin endeared himself to the police department here. Why why did that happen? They They felt a huge loss when he died. I've heard a lot of those guys talk, and they, he had a huge impact on their lives. You know, when he, and when I, and I right away, I'd say, oh, Alvin, you, you, first of all, what are you drinking? I know, I know, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But then he'd laugh, and, and you know, we, we, we knew it's going nowhere. Right, right. Uh, but the funny thing you mentioned is, he would tell me that all the time that he's in Vancouver, or he was in Toronto, or up in northern Ontario, um, and now that you tell me that he would tell the police that is kind of odd because I would just think that, oh, he's probably in lockup. Uh-huh. All those times when, I th- when he was in Vancouver, I was just thinking, oh, he's in jail. Okay. So maybe, <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe the times that he was staying in here like every day because at certain times in winter, he'd be here literally all day. And um, and then all through the evening, because I'd stay here till the wee hours of the morning. So at any given day, he could be here 
um, in and out without really finding a place to drink for, you know, 20 hours. Right. Um, so maybe those times are the times when all of a sudden he'd meet a police officer five days later after that, and, and he'd say he was in Vancouver. When we were like, he was sitting here in the gallery, right. and then maybe the times that he'd tell me he was actually in jail. Right. I, I don't right. know. Maybe that's Alvin's last laugh, is that he's sitting back going, you bunch of fools don't know whether I went away or not, do you? They don't. Yeah, you're right, we don't. That's so funny. It, it is, because I, I never realized that he would tell the police the same thing when they didn't see him, so he did go somewhere, and right. maybe it was the flip-flop of jail to here, and maybe he had another place that we don't know about that he did have a, um, a sister that he would see once mm-hmm. in a while. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, you're right, and and those things he he just he he wasn't in a hurry to just throw everything out either, right? Like to right. you. So, right. um, and again, I'm I was never I'm never one to pry. If somebody's gonna tell me, they tell me, right? But but it, it's it's not a lie. He was very close to the the, the police department. Really had a soft spot mm-hmm. for Alvin. Yeah. No, they did. Well, particularly uh, a few officers. I, I mean, I don't know if everybody did, mm-hmm. but um, there was definitely a few officers that, um, what I understand, were, were you know were pretty good to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that common that you hear officers really, really teary-eyed when they learn of somebody living on the streets passing away? I mean, that seems to me, from someone who doesn't know a lot about this life, that that would be fairly rare, that they would just think, well, there we go, there's another tragedy. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, again, and, you know, I'm sure you could speak to some other officers who are in there and they have people, you know, they'd probably tell you differently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they'll probably say, yeah, we're human like everyone. And, um, but my experience, and, and I have, I've been kind of close to the the police, more so when we worked directly with the RCMP when I was working with federal corrections, and um, that's that's I, I can't say that I've seen that before in my lifetime. Right, right. Yeah. So again, a testament to just something that this guy had. He he was a special guy. There's no doubt that Alvin was a special guy, and because he looked so rough, like he looked. He was like one of the roughest looking. His face was weathered and it was, and from my understanding, he was a pretty, you know, a pretty good looking young guy in, from what, from what they tell me. And you look at him and, and he just, his, he looked so rough and not somebody that a regular person is going to walk up and say, hey, hi to, but more like, ooh, there's that guy there. I'm not going to go into there now. You know, if he's in one of these little bank right. things and such like right. that. So, um, but what a missed opportunity to meet somebody quite, quite uh, interesting. Well, they get a different perception, I think, of life people. Yeah. Or, or, sorry, of street people. Yeah. If they actually did, you know, were forced into speaking, <laughs> having a conversation yeah. with Alvin yeah. in one of those little bank openings, right. you know, one of those little bank um, vestibules there. Um, yeah, they would. They would definitely get. They they they'd walk out of there with, wow, wow. I thought that guy was gonna like beat me or knife me right. or something, you know, to that degree. And, right. Yeah, and with Alvin, it would never happen. Right. Had you met any of his relatives at any time? No, no. I well, not not that I know of. Right. 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 Yeah. No. No. As a matter of fact, I never once seen Alvin. I, I, I may I, 
Not that I can remember. I'd never seen him with anyone. So he may have kept to himself, but he touched the lives of a lot of people in doing that. Yeah, he he, he definitely did, and and I can just give you my um, my own perception or my own opinion and or what he's done mm-hmm. to me. And to give you an idea of my background, is like I say, I spent 15 years in a maximum in a maximum federal penitentiary working um, frontline and working with the emergency response team. Uh, like the SWAT unit and also the dog team, and I came and and particularly in the 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 most vulnerable or the most volatile prison in Canada, which was Stony Mountain in the between 1982 and 1985. Mm. Um, so I, I mean I've seen a lot and I've been through a lot there and I met a lot of people in difficult situations and and had a lot of friends and and then coming here and then starting Sky Up and and really working and 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 and, and just absolutely been lucky enough to be engrossed in the lives of a lot of marginalized young people and 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 help them and 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 work with them and see their lives change i've been touched a lot mm-hmm. you know and i've learned a lot and i've been uh, hardened a lot too mm-hmm. and yet you know for someone like um elvin to when i heard that he passed away and i looked at that little thing that i seen in the uh, paper i um i it, it it brought me to some tears mm-hmm. you know i was driving in the car when i got the news and um it, it was it was it wasn't a good day right, right. so he right. was an enjoyable person to to know mm-hmm. and to befriend uh, and to associate with um there was a portrait painted by Corrine, there we go, her last name has escaped me, um, a, a, a portrait of Alvin. And that portrait had been, I think it had been in the, in the tribal council, it had been hanging on the walls in the tribal council, and the Saskatoon Police Department's just opened their new building here, and that was donated by the tribal council to the police department. Um, and when they were interviewing the chief of the tribal council he said the police department treated alvin with humanity and with dignity and i mean what more can you ask for um in treating somebody like an alvin when so many people do just see him at face value see his physical attributes and have the first gut instinct get go away get away get away um that that the law enforcers um, treat him with such humanity and such dignity. Uh, it, is that a commentary on the fact that these people are a part of our culture, they are a part of our downtown culture, and that if you just give yourself a second or two, you'll find out that judging a book by its cover is not just a cliché, it's something that denies you the opportunity to get to know a human being, no matter what their circumstances are. I, it definitely does. the The easy part, though, with Elvin is that, um, as much as he might have been guarded mm-hmm. in certain areas, and, and you'd and, have to be, yeah, like that, right? he was not. He he was overtly friendly. Mm-hmm. Like he was overtly friendly, and he had a great sense of humor. And whereas a lot of street people, uh, they're guarded to the degree where they look aloof. They look. Um, they kind of look scary. They they put on a hard. Even if they're not, they put on a, uh, you know, a mean thing because they're protecting themselves. And so the first little bit of interaction you have with them may not be that pleasant. Mm-hmm. 
but I but I know that a lot of those people really have that same heart that Elvin does. Right. Um, and they and they do you know they they want to be they want to have a friend just like Elvin did. It's just that Elvin was blessed, I guess, with a specific personality that that allowed him to have that gregariousness and that overt. Um, I don't know, just a just an effervescent type of a. A person. Well, so. it sounds like he had a really well intact sense of, of, um, of self and uh, self image that he could just go, well, this is me. And, and, and you know what? And he'd known, he, he, he was another person that tested himself mm-hmm. during, during his younger years. So he had nothing to prove to people. In his mind, he, you know, he, he went through the prison. He was a tough guy and he, 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 he had his reputation and that. So he knew that he didn't have anything to prove to anyone. What a great lesson for people walking around with huge self-esteem issues that are wasting so much time trying to be something that they're not. Totally. Then there's this person with nothing going for them as far as life circumstances, just saying, this is what you get. Yeah, yeah. And, and being proud of who, you know, being proud of the little things that, you know, there's a few things in his life that he was proud of. He was proud that he, was, uh, he went through the prison system and he was a tough guy. Mm-hmm. And he was proud of that. And he kept that. And, 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 and I knew about that. And he told me little stories about that. And um, that's, you know, so. But now he looked at himself as, yeah, now, you know, now I'm old and I'm whatever. And, and he'd laugh about his vulnerabilities now. Um, it's interesting you should say that in, in this article that I, that I got online at the, um, at the police blog. Uh, this is Officer Chesney who wrote this piece. And he, he asked Alvin if he was related to Chief Gabrielle Cote. And Alvin made a fist and began to pound his chest like an angry yet proud gorilla and yelled, that's my family, how do you know about him? So he had a great sense of pride in his heritage. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty neat. Your work here at SkyApp is very much focused on being... Um, a motivator for Aboriginal youth, and so that seems to be to me a carryover of the same kind of caring that you that you had for Alvin. That you you really want to honor people's best version of themselves, despite their circumstances. Yeah, exactly. No, that's exactly it. And 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 and, and in fairness to me, the, the the when I see somebody who's the most vulnerable, that's the per, that's the one that I that I want to you know see if I can make an impact on. It's no coincidence that that happens. My life in the performing arts, 100% of the time, whenever I hear people perform who I'm evaluating, who appear to be the most vulnerable, the most insecure, they are the people that are the, that make us all misty-eyed because what they give is so authentic and so real because it comes out of, well, it's, tapped into pain and struggle and overcoming and all that. There's nothing superficial about those kinds of personalities. And you must find that once you spend time um, with the youth here that you, that you think, wow, it's because of your circumstances that you are possibly more fascinating that you, than you have yet to realize yourself. 
Well, well yeah, and the, along those same lines is uh, unrealized potential is they don't realize really how strong they are and how, um, how, how much resolve that they have. Um, you know, because you'll put them onto a challenge um, that is 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 maybe a um, a different form of challenge in life. I mean, they're so they're so used to being so street smart and so street street strong, and 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 they have more um, <clears throat> like they're, they're I mean the, the strength that they have to get through the life that they've gone to so far and to be still. In, to be sane and, and still be where they where they're at and how they are, is uh, is incredible. So what I like to try and do is try to get them to use some of that amazing strength that they have. We all know people that you know have seemingly oh, yes. perfect lives and wake up saying there's got to be more than this and that Alvin perhaps that was enough. Yeah, that that is so interesting. And you know there there's uh, I have to. St- think that there's there could be some belief to that because i know there's lots of people around me that um are not they're not happy and yet you'd think that you know they had the you know the world by the tail so to speak um and then i even look at myself and my own kind of journey through life and you know i was in a position where i was living that you know that supposed house there that supposed life that's you know supposed to be so great you know you have a you have a beautiful wonderful you know amazing wife and and you have a um, big house, and then you, you know, buy a bigger house, and you, new vehicles, and you know, you got a secure job, and you know, she's got a secure job, and things are, you know, um, you know, supposed to be going pretty good, right? Um, and you think, yeah, so whatever. Um, but you, you know, I, but I was missing something, and did I know what I was missing? I didn't know what I was missing until, you know, um, that was all given up. Um, and you know, I went down to working a job that was half the less than half the pay that I was making, you know, at the top end in corrections, and working with young, vulnerable, um, marginalized, Aboriginal youth. And all of a sudden, life started to really become um, great. Um, there was a time now when all of a sudden I didn't need to buy a new car I didn't need to go out to eat three times a week you know at a restaurant I didn't need to to go to all these events these comedy events and all these different things that I would sp- I didn't need to spend that money that it I wasn't was stuff. yeah it wasn't at all and next thing you know it was like I, I'm, I'm making like less than half and all of a sudden I'm accumulating a few dollars and it's like what the hell I'm saving money I'm not even trying it's just, it, it, it was it was great. Like I was you know, working with these people, and you know, and I was going play catch and doing these. Just it was a different thing when you start making it. When I started making a difference in people's lives, in a positive way, it really changed. It really changed. It changed me. It made me all of a sudden like, wow, like this is pretty cool. I mean, I'm happy. Maybe revenue just isn't measured in dollars and cents. Maybe it's measured in the the impact you have on others' lives. It definitely isn't. And as a matter of fact, I left a, a, a little bit of a quote with um, a, a number of um, people in the World Junior Tournament. We had these gifts to give to uh, the World Junior Hockey Championships. And I had left a quote within one of the gifts that we had made for the MVPs of the, um, of the tournament from all different countries. 
uh, through SkyApp, and and that was basically that you know to in, in a way to look at success is not necessarily what you do or what you get, but what you do and what you achieve with others or for others, and that's what I've found. It's not what you get, or you know, it's not what you can accumulate or what you can get. It's it's really what you can do for others. That to me is is the epitome of success. In your own circumstances and maybe Alvin's circumstances what he was able to do for others maybe many people didn't even know until after he had passed what he was doing for them in his own simple imperfect life that he led he was in his own way doing something for others I, 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 I think that he was because Alvin was not um, he, he, he uh, he was not dumb in any way, mm-hmm. so he knew what other street people were doing. He knew what other he knew about the different kind of violence that's going on on the street, uh, and all those type of things. And and he didn't he wasn't partaking in that. He had his own way of dealing with people, and it's like you say he was he was good to people. He made an impact. You know what? I, I, I'm sure when you if you speak to people that have came through my life here through Urban Canvas and through Sky Up, they'll say that, you know, I made an impact on their lives. Well, I can sit here and I can honestly say that, that Elvin made an impact on my life in a positive way. Um, I'm going to read something uh, at the end of this blog uh, that Officer Chesney wrote. Um, I found out today that Alvin passed away a few days ago, and I must admit I feel an emptiness. It will be different as I walk my downtown beat, knowing that he will not be in one of the banks, and I won't have to make a special trip to go check on him. As an officer, you encounter many individuals, but you remember certain people because they are special, and Alvin was that one special person. Alvin was not a rich or well-accomplished man. He drank daily and chose to make the, the street his home, but he was, a t- he was tough, he was a fighter, and he was a survivor. It brings a tear to my eye to think of the bad things that happened to Alvin in his past to push him to lead the life that he has led, but in that, I do hope that he will find peace wherever he may now be. Farewell, my friend. You will be missed by many. That doesn't get written about the best of people who live extremely functional lives. Here's this guy hanging out in bank lobbies that should garner such. I, I have tough, I, I have difficulty just listening to you read that, actually. So, If I accomplish one thing in this entire series... It's to capture stories of people who are about to leave us or who are no longer with us so that we have an oral history of these lives that have touched our community and our province because that is culture as much as a piece of art hanging on a wall or a sculpture on a street. Um, What makes us who we are is part of our culture. So... I feel privileged and am grateful that I was pointed in your direction because it would be hard to find somebody to fittingly um, tribute to Alvin and the life and the impact that he made. And I really sincerely want to thank you for, for taking the time to do that so honestly. You know, I, um, I, I, I was looking forward to it because, like I say, um, you know, I, I, still have, um, I still have a picture of Alvin because... Mm-hmm. He he was as you know he's as good as any person I met, so.
can't have better tribute than that. And here's hoping in all those trips that he made to Vancouver and L.A. and Toronto that he knew that he was really just making a huge impact on people's lives. Thank you, Daryl. You're very welcome. my podcast on the story of Alvin Cote off with um, Daryl Leachman at SkyApp. And I had at the end of that session read a piece that had been published written by Constable Derek Chesney. And at that time, I had not anticipated that I would have the opportunity to meet Constable Derek Chesney. And lo and behold, here I am a couple of weeks later, sitting across from chess, as your friends call you. So uh, you're, you're actually here, and I couldn't be more thrilled to continue Alvin's story with you. So thank you for agreeing to meet with me. My pleasure to be here, Kevin. You know, um, Alvin's story, like we had just mentioned in our, our previous conversation here, is a, a story that needs to be told. And in this modern day, with pretty much every so-called theme or, or uh, element of people's lives being portrayed in books and movies and stuff like that. This is still kind of a, a, a new yet unique thing, but yet still not uncommon in our, uh, in our Saskatchewan fabric, for sure. Right. Um, just before we get into how Alvin impacted your life, um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, your, where you were born and your upbringing that informed the sensitivity that you have as you walk the beat in Saskatoon, um, which seems to really be quite significant in your story. So you um, you were raised on a cattle ranch in southern Saskatchewan, part you, of my... You betcha, yeah. I uh, Coming from a mixed ancestry myself, mm-hmm. um, bit of Hungarian, Polish, German, Ukrainian, bit of English, um, growing up around a lot of First Nations people, Soto, um, to the... Uh, to the north and 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 Crees to the to the west mm-hmm. and stuff like that. You kind of get a uh, and everybody lives in fair. Uh, everybody kind of works with each other and mm-hmm. and uh, there are certain people that that always have a chip on their shoulder. But for the most part, everybody in small rural areas and we just talked about that kind of from mm-hmm. where you're coming from mm-hmm. out, out in the far east in the yeah. Maritimes. Yeah. That you know what, eventually you're going to need the help of somebody. So mm-hmm. why not get along? So, right. And it's a great advantage to grow up in an integrated area um, of the country, uh, like the area you grew up in, because it, it, you you probably had a tremendous appreciation and empathy for our First Nations in the area that you grew up in. Well, my my grandfather was uh, was was a brilliant man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he had a grade six education, and uh, growing up, he was I was constantly getting books jammed in my face. Read this. Have a look at this. Mm. Do you, what do you know about this? So, Grandpa, um, uh, being a, a 
first-generation Canadian mm-hmm. of uh, Polish-Hungarian uh, uh, ancestors that that uh, come from Poland in the uh, late 1800s, and ironically went down to Texas for a number of years before they kind of come up to come up to Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Grandpa was a seeker of knowledge and kind of instilled that in the back of my head, and I didn't realize it till I attended university in my 30s years later that. That uh, he was kind of prepping me for for, mm-hmm. for what what was all out there and 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 making me realize that you know what there's probably more for you than staying on the farm and uh, kind of opening that door and, and he never had the opportunity to do it so I, I kind of felt I was uh, mm. uh, picking up where where he left off in kind of the. The, the elements that he he trained me in or kind of showed me kind of the proper way to do things. So right. so in that area that that I did grow up in, like I said, uh, my grandpa called First Nation people as brown brothers. Mm. And he would always talk about the First Canadians mm. and, and, and stuff like that. And, and he always tell me, he goes, you know, we may look different, but we share a lot of similarities. And, you know, you're a young kid, you're 16, 17, 18, mm-hmm. 15 years old, and you're like, what are those, like, yeah, they're different and they're native and stuff like that. What do those guys have in common with us? And I didn't understand it till years later, till I went to university and and actually started learning about the residential schools and and uh, colonialism and and, and uh, oppression and stuff like that. That well, that's why a lot of Eastern European people ended up in Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. Um, they faced some of that same stuff uh, mm-hmm. back in Europe mm-hmm. and came to uh, Canada for for a better life. So. Uh, First Nations people were here, and then they kind of had the reverse thing happen to them with right. uh, with things. So, right. yeah, sociology you studied. I did sociology. Sociology, uh, a lot of religious studies classes. Mm. If you could make a living at uh, studying <laughs> religion, I probably would have stuck with a uh, religious studies degree. But culture, religion, and stuff like that, and that that really kind of gave me a, a good framework to assist me with my job currently, sure. but also opened the door to um, in studying comparative religions. You know what, everybody first off, is quick to point out the differences in mm-hmm. people. And the one thing that I always notice that those differences are sometimes very minute, mm-hmm. but people make them into the big picture. But once you dig past the surface of the differences, you find we have a lot more in common with a lot of people. Um, and uh, it was something that, that I went to India years later. Yes, I was going to tell. We'll go into that. We'll go into that. And you know what? I, you know what? India was amazing. Um, I uh, was taking some, uh, I had taken some Eastern religion classes at the University of Saskatchewan and, and one of the, uh, the professors who ironically had uh, worked at the Canadian consulate in India a number of years before was planning a trip with another professor, uh, a history, a political studies a prof mm-hmm. who actually had a, a quite a passion for India and actually had worked at the Canadian consulate at a different time. So, so, so 20 of us headed off to India, ranged from 18 to 70. Um, there was three guys, two professors and the rest were gals. And we spent uh, six weeks um, touring through Northern India. And over there, like, I'm like, this is, there is nothing here that is the same as back home. But then once I got to know some people, and got to see kind of what made people tick a bit. You realize, okay, there's a lot more different, a lot more of the same here than not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I fell in love with the, the people of the Sikh faith. Mm-hmm. And what was amazing is that um, those boys make up a big chunk of the Indian army. They treat their, their elders well. They're farm-based people. And I said, hmm, who does that sound like? That sounds like Saskatchewan farm boys who... who uh, 
uh, excelled in World War One and World War Two. Um, are farm-based, rural-based, even though we have moved to the city sometime later. So, so that's just one example of, yeah. of a lot of similarities that that you can see in people that look totally different. Yeah. So you wrote um, in this uh, piece that you sent me. I was a, I was in a sea of people that did not talk like me, look like me, or even dress like me. I was a stranger in a strange land. And for a moment, I felt very empty and alone and removed from everything that I knew as familiar and common. Again, I can't help but thinking that that has to inform the way you approach the people that you see living on the streets who must feel very marginalized and, and, and not belonging. You know, Kevin, it's, it's interesting, but... Uh on my in my job as a beat officer downtown I interact with our with our uh, our cities less fortunate yeah. um, I a lot of uh, drug users um, people struggling with mental health um, poverty addictions and sometimes all of the above mm-hmm. and me growing up in a fairly comfortable normal environment um, although albeit not perfect, but, but yet at the end of the day, when you look back of, uh, being fortunate and stuff like that, having support of, of, of my dad and, and, uh, grandparents and stuff like that was, was amazing. And, and so many of these people, they didn't get that. So I, I know when, when you kind of look at things that, uh, uh, you kind of got to wonder sometimes where people, why people end up where they do. Mm-hmm. And I could never for once understand, um, why a person ended up, and, and I, I shouldn't be judging ever. Mm. And that's something that I really try to do every day is not to judge when I'm out there because I don't know what that person has experienced or the way they have viewed the world or, or what has been done or not done to them. So Everybody has a story. You betcha. We all do. We all yeah, do. We all so. do, yeah. And so four years ago, you began working the beat. You betcha I did. Yeah, you know what, when I when I start, I, I got into policing later on in life. was a cattle rancher for, for a good chunk of my life, raised some sheep and, and, and a lot of cows. Mm. Um, prior to that, played a little bit of junior hockey in Saskatchewan, did some coaching. Um, and then mad cow disease hit in 2001. Right. And that kind of made me take a look in the mirror and, and uh, start wondering, okay, is there a little more out there? For, for me. So that's when I ventured off to the city and on to school. And I never really, I knew that if I ever could do something other than being on the farm, I like to, I like to be a police officer. I think mm-hmm. that is a, uh, a, a pretty noble career. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives us a chance to maybe atone for some of our wrongdoings mm-hmm. in our earlier years mm-hmm. and, and kind of give back. Uh, and in the end, maybe help people that, that uh, aren't in a position to help themselves. So, uh, I was still in my training period, and uh, there was an old fella, um, 30-year member, just retired a couple years ago, named Dave Doc Campbell. Now, Doc was uh, not a big man. Um, He stood about 5'8", 160, 170 pounds, but yet he carried himself like he was 6'3", 220. Mm. And uh, I had the opportunity in my training period to walk the beat with him one day, and I fell in love with it. It was like, okay, this is why I have signed up to do this job. So uh, got a chance to work with him and kind of became friends with him after that. And he was kind of a gruff old bugger, but, but yet the biggest heart in the world. And I think he just kind of, he had been around for so long that he knew kind of where, where, where to step in and where to step out and just kind of kept to himself and, and did his thing. So it was coming up, his retirement, and he asked me one day, he goes, where are you working next year? We were, this was in the, in late in the, in the fall, October, November. I said, oh, I'll probably go work east side again. He goes, well, Beat's going to be open next year. You should put your name in for it. I said, well, I don't know if I'll get it. 
He goes, put your name and you'll get it. So right. that with that was kind of the, the torch was, was so to say, passed. And uh, like I said, I've been out there four years. It's been a, been a wonderful learning experience. Every day is a lot of the same, but then a lot different too. Because mm-hmm. everybody, everybody, we're all, we're different every day. Our, our, as much as the weather changes, our internal weather changes as well. So It's undeniable that the people living on the streets of the beat you walk are as much part of our culture um, as, as anybody else. And so you and I are on the same page that there's something about Alvin Cody's story um, that is bigger than I think any of us could realize um, and that there is a purpose to his life that is shrouded somehow and I would like to think um, a, a mystery of, of being able to to affect people even when Alvin is no longer with us um, and who'd have thought that would come from somebody who's living on the street you were Dennis was your FTO yeah so was that the first time you encountered Alvin when he was out? Yeah. Tell me about that confrontation between Alvin and Dennis. Well, you know, it was interesting, and we never did quite figure out why Alvin didn't like Dennis that day. Alvin could be very temperamental. Like he, there was, like I said, mentioned before, there was times that uh, I could sit and talk for hours and, and, uh, and couldn't get away from him. Then there was times he was so crabby and growly. He's like, I hate you. Get out of here. I'm going to kill you. And I, I knew where he was coming from. So, but that first day, yeah, uh, Dennis was my, my field training officer, FTO. And, mm-hmm. and I'd been on the street till oh, this would have been probably January, February, March, April of 09. And, uh, we got a call. Uh, I remember it was a Saturday, uh, kind of a sunny, uh, cold winter's day. And we got a call down by the old train station, um, corner of 25th, actually just across the street here mm-hmm. from, from where we're, we're sitting right tonight mm. at 25th and Ottawa. And there was an older gray haired man with a beard and he was yelling and scaring people. So Dennis is like, wow, that's probably Alvin. So I had heard all these stories of this kind of legendary wild old fighter and, uh, I was pretty excited because I, I, I've always been a human interest person. Like I, I, my thing is if somebody doesn't like a bunch of people, I try and get them to like me. And, uh, what's interesting enough is uh, that day we rolled up to Alvin and the minute he seen Dennis, he just started screaming, (laughs) I hate you. I hate that guy. And I never met him before. He looks at me and he goes, get that guy out of here. So I'm like, hey, Dennis, get out of here. So Dennis looks at me and goes and hops in his car and drives away. Now, being a brand new recruit, you kind of don't really leave your 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 trainee behind. No kidding. So I'm like, okay, I guess you must trust me. I'll, I'll kind of wing it. And what's the worst that can happen? So I walked up to Alvin. I said, what's going on here? He goes, I hate that guy. I said, yeah, but you don't hate me. We never met before. He kind of looked at me. and he, I said, uh, what's your relation to Chief Gabriel Cody? And he looked at me and he said, I kind of caught him out in left field, kind of mm-hmm. caught him off guard because um, having grown up in the southeastern part of Saskatchewan, I sure. got tons of friends on Cody and Kisagoose and, and uh, know the whole story of Chief Gabriel Cody. He was one of the uh, chiefs who signed Treaty 4 and, mm-hmm. and I knew Elvin was a descendant of his having the last name Cody. So he goes, how do you know about him? And I said, oh, I, I, I know about him. I said, tell you what, let's go. I said, We've got to take you on in today. Let's let's get going here. So he goes, I am a fighter. I said, Well, I you know what I heard you're a lover. And he, he started to laugh. <laughs> his his gruffness broke and he goes, Well, I'm not too, you know. Right, right. So I got him up and the old guy was pretty drunk that day. And by the mean this in the meantime, now Dennis had pulled around the block and, and was back there. I said, I got a new car here for you. Get in. So 
put him in the back. And we're driving downtown, and all of a sudden he starts tapping on the silent patrolman, which is the glass that is in between the, the back seats and, and the front seat. I go, what's going on? He goes, I'm hungry. And he was holding up a $5 bill. So uh, I said to Dan, I said, hey, do you think we get him something? He goes, oh, yeah. So we pulled down uh, on 2nd on Avenue by the old McDonald's, and I ran, and I, they had a deal on double cheeseburgers that day. <laughs> so I think I actually had to throw in about 30 cents, but I got him two double cheeseburgers, and he happily ate those all the way back to the station. And, and I actually, I went to check on him a little later once we got him booked in, and he was sound asleep in cell. So this was kind of a, that was my first of many, many, many encounters with Elvin over mm. the years. Mm. So. And he had been brought in many times. Many times. Um, I know uh, about a year before he died, um, the Star Phoenix did a little story on him, and then I think it was published that it was up in uh, close to nine hundred arrests mm-hmm. over over the over the years. Mm-hmm. So, but not everybody who has that kind of a record becomes some kind of a special friend with the police no you know it's why did that happen for alvin well you know what i had all sorts of uh comments after about the stockholm syndrome and and your uh. your, your tormentors become your friends and stuff like that and oh. and i i disagree with that totally you know what I, I i knew back in the day and i'd been told stories from some officers that alvin and he had a couple of brothers in town here that they fought with the police constantly over the years and and by no means were saints yeah but yet i think we all evolve as people over time whether we are in a good environment or a bad environment and i think over the years alvin slowed down a lot and and softened a lot and and i i caught alvin admittedly at the at the tail end of his time Mm -hmm. and you know you always hear stories of the guy that was not a good person his whole life to his kids and then in the end being a great grandfather being a great grandparent and stuff like that down the road and, and and maybe sometimes seeing the error of some of his ways and uh, felt that, uh, uh, or maybe had got some of that stuff out of his system. Mm. I don't know, but mm. but like, admittedly, I did get Elvin at the end of his at the end of his career, and he could he could see he was a salty old dog. But uh, me being who I am, and and uh, uh, liking to break down barriers and stuff like that, I I, uh, I uh, ended up spending quite a bit of time with him and, and got to know him on on quite a different level than I think a lot of people did. Mm. So there's also another historical. Um uh, component here that you wrote about when you were in university studying sociology and there was a textbook that you mm-hmm. were reading um, a sociology criminology textbook yeah. tell me about uh, who penned that book and the connection well you know ironically um, like I'd mentioned prior I, uh, I studied uh, sociology criminology and it with at the U of S there's a great uh, native uh, Aboriginal justice program Mm-hmm. Kind of looking at basically the uh, uh, the issues that are current and the trans- transgenerational stuff that's been been uh, kind of uh, carrying on since the residential schools and the whole colonialism thing. So um, there was a textbook called Marginality and Condemnation, and uh, a lady had written a story in there, um, and her name was Helen Cody. So Codys are quite a well known name and mm-hmm. stuff like that, and they're probably related. and And this textbook really. Uh, this chapter in this textbook really kind of hit home with me. I, I referenced it numerous times, um, would kind of go read it and stuff like that. And I know Elvin had a sister in town that he looked that kind of looked after him. And, and it wasn't until um, quite later on that I actually realized that Helen Cody was Elvin's sister. So the, sto- the part of the story that Elvin couldn't tell me or didn't tell me 
the textbook filled in. Mm. And uh, so it kind of gave me a little bit more of, of, uh, of, of the bigger picture of, uh, of Alvin and his family and, uh, and everything that kind of goes along with, with where he ended up. So, What got Alvin to where he found himself in life, in your opinion? Well, you know, to, to lead into that, police are, and especially beat officers, are, uh, we're kind of a different, we're cut from a different cloth. And you always hear the story when there's a problem and people are running away, people are running to. Right. We, the police officers are running to the problem. Mm-hmm. And I remember years ago watching a uh, National Film Board documentary called Whistling Smith. Mm-hmm. And Whistling Bernie Smith was a Vancouver police officer who walked the beat in the 70s, um, almost 40 years ago in lower, lower uh, Vancouver, before when drugs were just kind of coming in and stuff like that. And he said, street people are wonderful and they all have their stories. And he said, but police officers are street people as well. Hmm. So to kind of uh, build on what you were saying about most people would see Alvin downtown and, and, uh, and I don't know many people would drop him some change or whatever and stuff like that. But most people, most people, I believe, sometimes don't want to, they don't want to maybe get the story mm-hmm. because maybe the story, they know his story is probably filled with a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times that pain within his story might stir up mm-hmm. painful stories from mm-hmm. each of us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but in that, I do believe that you actually, if you go through that and work through that, you can kind of come to a, a different place within yourself and hopefully help that person a little bit as well. Do you find when you're talking to somebody living on the street a little bit about their story and where they came from, do you find that that really disarms them and, and, and that you, beca- you, you forge a bond just because you take that moment to care? Or do they see right through that? Do you know what? Every situation is a little different. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the most part, um, street people take a long time to trust mm-hmm. because they've had a lot of bad things happen to them. They've been let down. They've been taken advantage of. So that, and especially me coming in as an authority figure with mm-hmm. this red stripe and this gun on my hip mm-hmm. and, and, and stuff like that and have a job to do and have the power and authority to arrest them or give them a ticket or give them a stern talking to and stuff like that. So it's quite a fine balance, um, especially for uh, an officer. Like I know the boys in the cars uh, and the gals, they, uh, their action with people, their, their interaction with people is, I don't think they have time to build the relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's quick. It's fast paced. Um, They're from one end of the city to the next. Um, It's a different kind of policing. The policing that the beat is, is, and my partner and I were talking about this last night, it hasn't changed much in the last couple of hundred years. Mm-hmm. You look at Sir Robert Peel, um, mm-hmm. the Bobbies back mm-hmm. many, many, many years ago in, in London, and uh, the whole idea of the the people are the police, the police are the people. We're just members of the community that, that have been given a little extra authority to make sure the status quo is kept, but we're no different than nobody else. Mm-hmm. So... As far as building relationships with people on the street, it, it's trust takes time. And there's some people that take a bit of time to warm up, 
And then there's some people that they will never trust you. Mm-hmm. And that's an unfortunate side side of things. But it doesn't doesn't stop me from continuing to try every day and and, uh, and realize that a lot of times people are held back by biases um, or mental illness or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yet you can't you can't help. I mean you 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 can't fix it for them, right? No. I mean you can't intervene and try to make things better. So do you have to stay slightly removed from their circumstances that way? I mean is there a part of you that goes home at night and thinks I wish there was something I could do? Definitely. And uh, I, I don't think there's you know off, police officers sometimes get a get a rap for being aggressive and, and, and stuff like that. And you know what? I think a lot of times people aren't getting the whole story. Mm-hmm. 99% officers I know, if you went and talked to the people that hired them in that final interview and you were asked why you want to be a police officer, they say, I want to help people. I want to give back to my community. I want to live in a safe community and I want to be a part of that. I want to help people who can't help themselves. And there is a level of... Uh, your boundaries have to be good. Like I, I, I can't be taking every guy home with me and, right. and, and looking after him. But you know what? Uh, a quick chat on the street, a handshake, a positive comment from me, a coffee, um, even a wave across the street now. You can see people that are living in our communities that are very much a part of the fabric, but yet are kind of invisible. And I look at it that when I do chat with these people and, and the other beat guys and then officers and tell them when you do take that little bit extra time, it makes them visible. And they, they can feel that visibility that they're a part of the community and they're people too. And uh, to have uh, their stories heard and, and uh, I kind of leave it out there sometimes. I, I usually tell a little bit about myself and, mm-hmm. and then they share a little bit about their selves. And I had an old uncle that used to say two short visits are better than a long one. <laughs> and uh, that's very much my job. Quick five minutes here and there, two minutes here, a wave, a pat on the back, a hey Chess, how are you? Or a hey so-and-so, how are you doing? Boy, you're looking good today. What's new? Uh, weather, sports, you name it, politics. You get into it for two, three minutes and move along. And, and you, can t- you, can just, you can sense in people that you have boosted them. And to me, that's that's my little bit of satisfaction. Uh, in general terms, I know that you've uncovered a little bit of Alvin's story um, early on in his years that caused tremendous amount of pain that mm-hmm. obviously um, informed where he ultimately wound up on the street. Yeah? Yeah. You know, um, Alvin did attend residential school. Um, and you know what? I can't imagine, uh, being a parent myself, I can't imagine somebody coming and, and taking my kids away. Yeah. And taking my kids away and you don't see them for months on end and the clothes that I made them and the hairstyle that they had and the language they spoke and all that kind of stuff is cut. Mm-hmm. And taken away, and 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 you look at the residential school process um, of, uh, and I'll be blunt, it, it it was designed to, and it's been quoted numerous times to to knock the Indian mm-hmm. out of out of the kids, and they took they took that bottom generation. Now I know with Alvin's family, and and uh, when the kids got taken away, the parents were devastated. Mm-hmm. Uh, First Nations families, as much as anybody else, are close knit, even more so community based. 
um, generational or grandparents and aunts and uncles and a lot there's a lot more like us Europeans we can move all over the world right. and, and start again and do things but but uh, I know in many First Nations communities if you're banished from the community that was worse than death yeah. um, so to have all that stuff just snipped all those roots all that religion all that culture all that language on top of it, abuse, whether it be sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse that so many of these kids endured, um, it, it transgenerationally fragmented out to generations of, of really damaged and, and uh, people that had all their roots taken away. Like me, I've been in the city 10 years. If I start feeling, feeling a little bit off, a few days back at the ranch, working with the cows, helping dad fix some mm-hmm. fence, hopping on the old horse and going for a ride, um, spending time where my family has been since the 40s, um, the place that I grew up on, uh, that grounds me. But if I, if any of us had all of that stuff taken away, it puts you in, in a, uh, your support system is, is, uh, is the whole thing of forming our psyche and keeping us all in balance. Right. So it would be a continual struggle to um, try and stay afloat. But even with all that taken away, the power of the story is so huge that you can walk up to Alvin and ask about his kin. Yeah. And instantly he lights up. So yeah. the story, you can't take the story away from the person. Yeah, you know what, Annette? And I knew that that day to, uh, like we had mentioned before this interview about, uh, you can pretty much make a connection with anybody. Mm-hmm. And I've traveled a lot and been around a lot. And Saskatchewan is a small, small place. And if you've played any hockey or played any sports or have lived in a few places, and, and we're all related here. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's uh, you go back, Saskatoon, um, <clears throat> a lot of people that are here aren't from here. We've all moved into the city. So we all got roots to the smaller places. And yeah, you, you do have that, that connection to um, your ancestors, even, even if you are far removed. Mm-hmm. You're correct. Right. Most people would not survive that trauma of an early life um, mm-hmm. as a child in the residential school system into many of their young adult years before, you know, um, perhaps finding themselves um, in an untimely demise of some sort. Alvin found his life on the street, which seems insurmountable in and of itself. So he's got a double whammy. And the magic of Alvin is that he laughed so much and he had such a positive attitude in the face of all that. Not a lot of people survive even one of those life-shifting moments. Why did Alvin? Do you know what? There was something different about Alvin. And uh, when I was in India years ago and I'd see the old wandering holy guys around, the sadhus and stuff like that, the people that have, uh, and this is totally foreign in our Western idea, but uh, to prevent numerous rebirths over and over again, Mm The people will basically, at whatever age, they will basically have their own funeral. The family says goodbye to them, mm-hmm. and they venture out. A lot of times, heading to a lot of the holy places along the Ganges, Varanasi, uh, Hardware, Rishikesh, and they basically live out their last bunch of years trying to unattach themselves from what the Hindu faith and Buddhist faith believes that keeps us from coming back over and over and over again. There's something better beyond this earthly realm 
And when I when I got to know Alvin and uh, knew about the, the the compensation he had gotten from the residential schools and land claim compensation and and uh, that stuff that means something to us meant nothing to him. Mm-hmm. And I would chat with him numerous times, and he'd go missing for weeks on end sometimes. So, so I think sometimes he was at his sister. Sometimes he was probably in corrections, but. I'd always ask him, hey, where have you been? I've been missing you. Ah, I was in Vancouver. Or I was in Toronto. Or I was in L.A. I'm like, Laurent? She's like, no, the real L.A. <laughs> I said, well, what, what do you... I said, did you like it there? Well, he goes, there's a lot of fighting there and gangs and stuff like that. And I like fighting. I said, well, what about Vancouver? He goes, nah, too big. I don't like it there. I said, well, you know, the Vancouver police, I, I know some of those guys, they seem like a pretty good bunch. No, don't like those guys. I said, well, what about us? Saskatoon police. He goes, no, I don't like you guys either. I said, well, what about me? He goes, well, I wouldn't be talking to you if I didn't like you, did I? So, you know, you speak of that humor, that, and he always had it. Like, like he, he, his soul, you couldn't, uh, you couldn't break him down. And, like, I, I know he'd never read... Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And I, I thought of that, and I'm like, that just shows me that no matter what we as people endure, there's things that you can't break out of us. Mm-hmm. And and that's what drew me to Alvin um, as much as, as uh, me and many other officers who kind of kept watch for him and gave him sandwiches and gave him cigarettes. And I remember one time I was cleaning out my closet and, I had a, a kind of a old Roy Rogers cowboy shirt. It was white with embroidered flowers and red roses and horseshoes on the thing. And and uh, I, I gave that to him, and he proudly wore that around for quite a while. And I was I was I'm like, oh, that's that's pretty cool to have that. So, but the unbreakable Alvin Cody. Yeah. Just, he's like that that elusive man on the top of the mountain that everybody wants to climb to to get the meaning of life. Totally. You know what? Totally. And he totally was the sage, like you say. And and even even now, um, I'll I'll share a little story with you, Mm -hmm. um, something that happened a little while ago. We just recently moved into our our new police station. Mm -hmm. Here we are. Beautiful. It is. And I I, I knew that... uh, You know, in in knowing Alvin, I I knew that he was kind of eternal. Like, he, he just... He just would keep going. Nothing could ever really get him down. So we move into the new station. I'm moving into my nice new big locker. And and, uh, after Alvin's passing, um, a funeral director from uh, Funeral Home in Campsack got a hold of me, knew I had knew Alvin and uh, wrote about Alvin, the blog and stuff like that. And he dropped off a couple of uh, funeral bulletins. So I had him in, I've given a few of them out to people that that I knew uh, uh, were were special to Alvin and stuff like that. And so I had one and I hung up. Yeah, I hung one up in my locker. So that afternoon, I was out at a barbecue way out kind of in the north end, and, and a lady came up to me who uh, who had listened to me speak about Alvin at a, a race racism breakfast a couple months ago. And, and she said, you know, I heard you talk, and, and uh, what you've done for First Nations people, you don't even know um, what you've done um, in, in a positive light and, and stuff like that. And I said, you know, ironically, I said, you know, I, I had this funeral bulletin of Alvin, and uh, I said, I, I hung it up in my locker today. And she held out her arm, and her whole arm turned to goosebumps. And she goes, oh, spirit's here. Ah. And immediately, my whole body, my whole neck, my whole everything went to goosebumps. And I can feel it right now again, mm-hmm. too. And it, 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 it made me chuckle, because I knew that, uh, yeah, yeah, this is... 
this was somebody very special that is even still connecting and affecting people even after he's passed on. Mm-hmm. And the weight of, of Alvin's life and Alvin's story from being a ragged street person that was kind of invisible um, to being now a very visible and, and uh, uh, elemental featured person in kind of the history of that he's like a spokesperson for um, everybody that kind of has gone through stuff similar to him. I had mentioned that whole um, being the L.A. story in mm-hmm. front of Vancouver. Do you think he actually went? Do you know what? I don't know. Like, <laughs> you know what? It, 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 it don't, uh, you know what? Knowing him, yeah. you never bloody know. But you know what? We laughed about the fact that even if he didn't, yeah. it was hysterical yeah. that in his mind he did, yeah. and that's all that really mattered. Like, you know, you, you, we think about street people. Uh, okay, no education, no this, no that. You know, every time he'd get brought into cells, he'd be like, I need something to read. But he, he liked Reader's Digest, mm-hmm. but he his main thing was National Geographic. He goes, <laughs> I, he goes, I want the book with the animals and the yellow on the cover yeah. so then I'd find him one and I it, there is a story about one time I was not working at the time but uh, somebody gave him a Reader's Digest that had Anne Murray on the cover and I, and I don't want to insult uh, someone kind of from your neck of the woods I love my Anne but, Murray but he Alvin had a dislike for Anne Murray nobody ever knew why I don't know if he knew her music or whatever but or he, maybe he, she looked like an old girlfriend or something but he lost it and started screaming and yelling probably about as much as he yelled and screamed at Dennis that day about Anne Murray so but yet again that spirit and that character and that humor okay the guy's being arrested he's brought in for whatever charges and he's freaking out about Anne, about getting a, a Reader's Digest with Anne Murray on it so that is so funny. And if you're listening, I'm a huge fan. Huge fan. <laughs> That's very funny. I just love the fact that he may not have been to any of those places, but he no. was so convincing. We all believe yeah. it anyway. You know what? And and when I look at him, um, and I, I would play into it with him, and, and I, he knew Vancouver was big. And, you know, here was this guy who streetwise was a genius. Yeah. But yet, you know what, he, you can be smart in a lot of different ways. And, I'm, and not to say that Alvin wasn't intelligent, but you know what, he was, he was brilliant on survival. And that was the thing that got me. He said, you know what, to sleep outside in the cold and walk around with no toque on and no mitts and bounce from bank lobby to bank lobby to us to back alleys and stuff like that. And it was like, wow, this guy is... It's amazing. Like the 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 the, the survival, um, just being able to endure almost anything. He it, would laugh at those survivors. It was not a big deal. I'm very cold, and he'd always get upset in the summertime because he didn't like the heat. So we'd I'd run into him, and I'm like, "What's going on? It's too hot." He'd say, "It's too hot." I'm like, "Where are you going?" Because I'm going up to the Yukon to work in the mine, and I think he probably did work in the mine because he mentioned that numerous times back in the day. Mm-hmm. And then I'd see him next. I said, when are you going? He go Friday. I'm like, when are you coming back? He's like, well, nah, I don't know. When it cools off. So then I'd see him next block again. I'm like, when are you going? He goes, Friday <laughs> again. So he, uh, yeah, he he uh, he was an interesting man. Um, yeah, I could, like I said, I could talk for hours about him. And he, he had a huge kind of impact on me. So uh, you weren't um, on the beat when he died. 
Um, but he did die in circumstances which made you feel, if one could, at least somewhat um, comforted. Tell me about that. Well, you know, like we mentioned before about we can never know how someone else is feeling. And we can, you, you, they always say you can walk a mile in someone else's shoes, but you really can't. And to me, um, I always thought me or one of the other beat guys would have been the person that would have found Alvin down some back alley, some cold winter's night. And, and when I found out that he died at St. Paul's Hospital, um, he was in a warm bed, his family was there. I heard he had the nurses chuckling and laughing even right up to his passing. It, it made me say that, you know what, um, he deserved that. And I, I think we all, I think we all deserve kind of in the end what what we've put out there we get back. And like I said, Alvin wasn't a saint by no means of the imagination. But you know what, he, he died with a little bit of dignity. Um, he died in the hospital. Um, his family was around, and, and it, it made me feel good that I, I couldn't couldn't change a life lived. I couldn't change anything, um, but. I, I could offer a little bit of support and, and with him, even a coffee or, or a handshake or a quick visit, that probably meant a lot to him. So, After you found out he died, what was the, the walking the beat um, that day or evening like for you? Well, you know what, I, I, uh, a, after writing my blog, I, I, I came in and, and uh, you know what, even to this day, it's, it's been a couple of years now, um, I'll go and I'll glance in the bank and there's, he was always in the national bank downtown and he used to in there and my partner and I joked that that was the national bank of Elvin. And uh, he'd always be in there and he'd be sitting there and he'd be playing solitary sometimes or he'd be sleeping or whatever. And I'd go tap on the glass and he'd look up at me and he'd laugh and give me a thumbs up and away you go. But, but you know what it, it, it is, it is, uh, it's different out there that he's been gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are other guys that have kind of, came and went that I've helped out in the same way that him and bonded with them good and seen a few of those guys kind of get sober and, and, and get moving on with their lives. And then mm-hmm. see, you see a few other guys still spiral downwards with the addictions. But but uh, yeah, it's different out there since, since he's been gone now. His spirit's still there by by uh, by no means of the imagination. It's not gone anywhere. But uh, in his, his physical presence is, is not there. There's a reason why this man's story continues. Yeah, totally. It's it's undeniable. Yeah. Well, when you look at people that are on the street, nobody's out there by choice. Yeah. Um, Alvin, um, interestingly enough, and I and, and I had numerous discussions with people, and and through whatever Alvin was on the street, and and he did have a place to go to to his sisters, and and I know he he could have been housed or had a place to go, but he. In, in renouncing everything that we consider as normal modern day society, he removed himself to the outskirts, but yet, like you mentioned before, he's that, that, that holy man up on the mountain mm-hmm. that everybody says, well, hey, maybe we're doing it wrong and he's doing something right. Mm-hmm. So who knows? Who knows? Yeah. That's for everybody to decide. First of all, thank you for bringing Alvin's story to my series. I wasn't just having an off morning when I heard that interview and thought, why do I feel I need to do this? And became really obsessed with it. But there is a reason why. So um, thank you for your contribution to that. And 
Secondly, and just as importantly, thank you for everything you're doing out there on the street. Well, you know, like I said before, um, police officers, when when most people are running away from trouble, we're running towards it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it takes a special uh, special breed to, to be out there and do what we do. But in the end, we're no different than nobody else. We, we don't mm-hmm. do anything that, that anybody else don't do. Um, like I said, I want to live in a safe community. Uh, and you can look past it and say, you know what, there's probably not a person listening to this or out there that doesn't have someone in their family that's dealt with abuse issues, that's mm-hmm. dealt with addictions issues, that's dealing with mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you mentioned before, um, it don't take long to fall through the cracks. Mm-hmm. Um, I would hope one day that uh, if something ever happened to me that somebody would be kind enough to, to uh, stop and talk to me or buy me a coffee if I was down and out and, and uh had lost everything so you know what i think that paying things back paying things forward um giving giving hope to someone who has lost all their own is is important and uh like i said i'm no different than nobody else uh i didn't i didn't uh write anything about alvin or i'm not talking to you today to to boost me up or whatever but it's it's you know what it's it's uh it's uh yeah, it's, it just shows that everybody deserves to be, tra- deserves to be treated with, with fairness and dignity and respect. And, and uh, we live in a busy culture. Mm-hmm. And if I give, could give anybody out there that's listening to this um, a little bit of advice, I'd say slow down. Mm. Slow down and take time to kind of see what's going on around you. Because there's a lot going on around us that we don't take time to do. And as a beat officer, I'm at a slow pace. I'm walking maybe three kilometers, four kilometers an hour. Um, I see a lot of stuff downtown that nobody else sees. So take the time to stop and smell the roses, so to say. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Kevin. Thanks for listening. The Sascapes podcast is created by Kevin Power as part of the Culture Days Animateur program operated by Sass Culture. Funding to the cultural sector is provided through the Saskatchewan Lotteries Trust Fund for Sports, Culture and Recreation. If you want to hear more of these podcasts or to see the great work being done by other SAS culture animateurs, please visit www.iheartculture.ca. Special thanks to Paved Arts in Saskatoon for their technical support. Sascapes podcasts are also available through the iTunes Store. Music for Sascapes is provided by Saskatchewan-born singer-songwriter Jeffrey Straker. There is no end to the stories to be told. So, until next time...